We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. We were talking about this the other day. You know, it, it, we give away so much money now in lotteries, and you see the pictures of the winners and stuff, and, oh, that's great. You feel good for them. But it's amazing how much stir or, or, or publicity uh, this all gets when no one claims the prize. Uh, the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation said the $70 million Lotto Max ticket that we were talking about yesterday has not been physically validated, therefore is now considered expired. Uh, with June 2028 draw 2022 uh, purchased at a retailer in Scarborough no one has claimed the prize as of deadline 10:30 uh, last night a physical $70 million winning ticket uh, not taken to an OLG terminal. So uh, the rest is uh, history, as they say. Let's bring in Tony Batanti, spokesperson for the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission, and here now. Tony, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, I am doing fantastic. Again, I am a little sad uh, right now because one part of the story is done, but it's not it's not totally complete yet. So if I can fill in a little piece of that puzzle. Go um, for it. We, because we still have, so you're right, the ticket, the physical ticket was never presented to OLG or to the lottery terminal. So that, so if you go to check that ticket right now, it will say expired. Mm. But we had over 1,100 people call in since we started our awareness campaign about a month and a bit ago um, and to say, I've lost the ticket. I think it's my ticket. I've lost the ticket. <laughs> and if, if you've called before yesterday's expiry, uh, then you're still in the queue. Oh. And there's still a possibility that we may have a needle in that haystack. We don't know. So we still have we have the obligation to to at least vet those folks that, that, that called in. And because we have so many people, we've never had this much before. So yeah. our, our team of, of lottery investigators is a small but hearty bunch. And mm. uh, they do need to go through all of those folks, ask them some, some questions. Um, we you know we can discount some of them quickly if they don't answer the right question. Like basically, is which store did you buy it at? That's kind of the first question yeah, that we'll yeah. ask. And if you can't guess one of the four hundred stores in Scarborough where that ticket was sold, then you're off the list and we move on too. So there's still a chance, Scott. There's still a chance. You know what, Tony? Uh, I, I now that you mentioned this, I, I think there's been situations in the past where somebody has not been able to present the ticket for whatever reason, and through cameras in a store, and because you guys know exactly where everything is purchased, times whatever, and the person used a credit card or a, a debit yeah. or something, you were yeah, able was, to actually was, verify this. Was is that yeah, accurate? That a, yes. Yeah, that was a lady in Hamilton who yeah. actually worked in Cambridge uh, at the time. And this was back in 2012, 2013. Um, and she bought a ticket at a shopper's drug mart, uh, used her credit card, used the loyalty points. Uh, and, and we did have the video for that one. So that's a really rare case because we don't yeah. have the video because it's not our video. There's privacy yeah. issues. And that time we had the video, uh, but she also paid by credit card and stuff. But she wasn't coming forward. We're like, why is 
this person not coming forward? So we started one of these awareness campaigns, didn't say anything about video, but then as the time was ticking, again, we had the information, so we have the obligation to go and knock on that person's door, ask them some questions. They, they kind of caught on quickly, uh, but we did discover that she threw that ticket away. Oh, man. She had the jacket. She had everything. And she says, I know I checked a bunch of tickets one time. And, and they were all non-winners. I bet you any money was in there. Now, mm. she gave us all the information that we needed. Because we didn't, at that time, we didn't say anything about video. Yeah. We just said that we have some information. But she was able to tell us all the information. And in this case, it's the same thing. If someone has lost the ticket and they can tell us everything about that ticket, because mm. we have it. The one piece of, in, what we, that we don't have, the one piece of information is, who bought the ticket? In this case, there is no video because, again, it's now we're we're twelve months. Now we're you know three hundred sixty-five days past yeah. this whole thing, and we don't pull video willy-nilly. We have to have an investigative reason to pull it. Right. In this case, we did not. Just because someone didn't come to claim it is not is not a pure reason for that, too. So, right. Right. So in this case, we we're still we're still about a couple hundred people that we have to go through. So it may be a couple of days now with a long weekend ahead. Maybe a couple of days before we know definitively, but we know definitively that that ticket has right. not been presented to us. And because the ticket wasn't presented, that obviously means you're more inclined to check out these ones that claim that it is theirs because it could yes. could very well yeah. be. Absolutely, absolutely. And but the main thing is, Scott, someone bought that ticket. Someone put down ten, fifteen dollars, whatever, yeah. on a Lotto Max ticket for a chance to win seventy million dollars. And they won seventy million dollars, yeah. and they did not come forward. <laughs> All so right, so give us some, part. so give us some tips here, Tony, so this doesn't happen to players that are yeah. that are trying. So, what is it better to buy your ticket with a card of some sort? So, so if you do buy, um, you know, uh, sure, buy with a credit card. But remember where you bought that ticket. Always remember where you bought the ticket. But yeah. the main thing is check the ticket right away. Don't don't keep it in the junk drawer in a jacket pocket where it could get yeah. lost for several months or in a jeans where it could get washed. But definitely check those tickets right away. Sign them, and if you do put them in a safe spot, remember where you put it. And but but then the other thing too is it's a little bit of a plug for us. Is you know what you can buy your tickets online. And we tell you when you've won. So we'll wow. send you an email. There you go. You, because it's registered. You register <laughs> yes. on worldview.ca yeah. account. Um, and, and then we'll literally tell you if you've won something as well, too. So just simple things like that. But remember where you've purchased your ticket. And I know people travel. People work different locations. Sure. And, and, and they buy it at one gas station or a shoppers or a mom and pop shop. So it's a little difficult. But just try to remember. But check those tickets right away. That's the, right. that's the main thing here. All right, Tony Batanti with a spokesperson for the Ontario Lottery uh, Corporation. So obviously the ticket has not been claimed, but there's still some paperwork to be done because yep. there still may be a winner. Tony, a great story. Thanks so much for taking the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, man. All right. With uh, obviously, with what we're seeing with smog and and forest fire action right across the country, including right now what we're experiencing in in Ontario and Quebec, uh, lots of chatter again about the environment and climate change and it being a global phenomenon and such, and more importantly, what we do uh, or don't do to try to get a handle on this. I think everybody wants to. It's just what's the best way to do it. As you know, I'm a firm believer in getting us off of coal uh, and. We 
we see DeFasco doing this uh, in the future here in Hamilton uh, and, and, and how much that's going to help. But the bridge is obviously natural gas. Norway's government said on Wednesday it has given approval for oil companies to develop 19 uh, oil and gas fields with uh, investments exceeding $18 billion U.S. Uh, in order to uh, bridge the gap. Norway becoming uh, now outpacing Russia as selling natural gas uh, to the rest of Europe and obviously uh, who spend a lot of time burning coal. Let's bring in Atif Kaberzi, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, President of Econometric Research and former Undersecretary of the United Nations with us now. Atif, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. It's a pleasure to be with you. Atif, what are your thoughts, and, and are you surprised to see Norway uh, taking this route? I'm, I'm not really surprised. I mean, there is an issue here. Europe is looking for energy security, and with Russia out of the equation, uh, there is a concern that Europe may not have sufficient energy, but it couldn't have come at the worst time. Look, particularly for us in Canada, yesterday Toronto was the worst air city in the world. I mean, there is no way we can deny the connection between carbon and between fossil fuel burning and what's happening to the environment. And it's not really restricted to Canada. Uh, the foul air is over most of the cities. 120 million Americans were under uh, air quality uh, advisory. Europe is now receiving some of these uh, difficult smoke Cover is this there. not is this not is this not all the more reason Atif, to get the world off coal because just as our fire uh, just as the smoke from our fires are traveling across to Europe, uh, obviously the fallout from all of this coal being burned in other parts of the world is coming our way and affecting our our climate here. So uh, is this is this the right method? Is it about getting the world off of coal? Yeah, I mean, uh, Scott, you seem to think that coal is the only uh, bad uh, fuel. I'm I'm not saying that at all, Atif, but what I'm saying is it's a huge step. Uh, You know, it's not perfect. But again, I use the example of DeFasco here in Hamilton, who are going off coal and electric, but it's going to take a transitional period where they're using natural gas, which still reduces their emissions by 60%. It's not perfect, Atif, but it's a lot better than going in 20 different directions, isn't it? Or... Or perhaps, you know, uh, we're a country that gives off 1.5, 1. 1.4% 1. of the world's greenhouse gases. Wouldn't it be best to use what we have to get the world off of coal? I mean, the, the countries yeah. that are uh, displacing 30% and such, they're burning coal. Yeah, I know yeah, there's, there's lots no of other fuels, it. but yeah, coal, yeah, coal is the major one. Yeah, yeah but uh, there is no question about it, too, that carbon is not only coming from burning coal it's coming also from gas it's coming from no but is that not where well, the majority of it is coming from those coming countries from i mean and there is one fact that seems to be now established and there is no question about it burning fossil fuel is not consistent with saving this planet and uh, dealing with climate change we have to deal with it sooner or later the sooner the better it is we are crossing that threshold where carbon is now uh, considered to be uh, inconsistent the carbon budget with 1.5 
temperature rise 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial time. I mean, we're lucky if we can really get it to be three degrees, and this is going to be a very serious challenge uh, to the survivability. We all, uh, we all know, Atif, we all know where we're going, and everybody agrees with that. That's not the issue. The issue and the challenge is, how do we get there? That's what everyone's debating. Nobody's debating how severe the issue is. We've been over that time and time again. What we're trying to talk about is, how do we all row in the same direction and actually make an impact? And many have suggested that the biggest polluter is coal, and if we row towards there, we would at least make a dent as opposed to going in in, in, in many different directions and, and not having the impact that we could. Is that, is yeah, that valid think, at all? No, I agree with you. I mean, we have to get out of coal, but I go a little bit more. We have to get off fossil fuel sooner or later. And yes, the, I, I think everyone it, agrees with that. So what are your thoughts regarding Norway doing what it's doing? Yeah, I mean, to a great extent, uh, People are now recognizing that uh, we have to think of the environment and energy security at the same time. We don't want uh, to completely go off oil and gas uh, if we really have uh, no alternative. But we do have alternatives. Now we're, the world is now producing more uh, electricity from solar and from wind than it had mm -hmm. ever done before. Uh, mm -hmm. We can use electric vehicles. We can uh, go to uh, hydrogen, clean, green hydrogen. So the alternative exists. And the issue here, to what extent are we investing into these alternatives? To what extent are we building the infrastructure that would allow us to make this transition as fast as we can and in a way that would be commensurate and consistent with what the requirements are for constraining this carbon that is harming us? Uh, uh, again, uh, this is about bridging the gap from one to another. You can't do what what can't be done yet. It's as simple as that. That's why uh, Europe is burning coal. That's why they're tapping into natural gas, because those alternatives aren't there yet. And we've been talking about them for 10, 20, 30 years now, Atif. So again, I agree with you 100%. These are all directions we should be going in. But we've got a 10 to 20, uh, whatever year period here where there's a transition. And it seems that Norway has realized that. Uh, America has realized that that Canada's having a tough, a tough time understanding the business case, which to yeah. me is, is, is bizarre. And again, I'll use the example of DeFasco. I mean, my goodness, there's mountains of coal there. They're going electric. That's amazing. Uh, but there's, there's, uh, you know, nobody spoke of the, of the natural gas pipeline that was going to have to be installed for them to bridge that gap. That didn't come out in the big press conference. And that's defeating because at the end of the day, you can't just flick DeFasco from coal to electricity, just like you can't flick the rest of the world. So how can it be good for DeFasco, but it's not a good business case for Canada? No, but there is a very good business case for uh, going to the renewable energy. Today, the amount of money you invest to get one kilowatt hour from solar or wind is so much less than any other alternative. There exists alternatives. They're there. They're cheaper. They're cleaner. 
I don't know why we are hesitating and debating all the issues on the side of things. Let's go directly and make that transition, make it as fast as possible, make it as easy and less costly as possible. And these exist. There is not a single reason what should hold us from moving to renewable clean energy. If we're if it's not easy, Atif, why aren't we there? Why weren't we there 10 years ago? Oh, well, I, I, let me tell you, uh, there exists a vested interest that is making it very difficult to make uh, this transition. I understand uh, that, Atif, and I'll stop you right there because we're limited on time. But, Atif, there's also a massive vested interest, business interest, in finding out and cashing in on what is next. That's even greater. Yeah, oh, no, it, it, it's there, but it's a vested interest that is also co- consistent with our uh, clean environment. And, and I don't see, uh, you know, when you align interest to be on the good side, there is no problem. Atif Kabersi with us, Professor Emeritus of Economics, McMaster University. Fascinating discussion, Atif. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. In a press release, Hamilton Police Service announced this week downtown residences and businesses will start to see some familiar faces patrolling the downtown core. In response to requests for increased uh, police presence, Hamilton Police have launched the uh, have launched what they're calling Core Patrol. Uh, to talk more about all of this, David Hennick is with us, Superintendent Hamilton Police Service, and with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So talk about the objective here. What is the Core, core Patrol about? Well, uh, Scott, we've, we've heard loud and clear uh, from our community, some of our business uh, owners in the downtown core, that people feel unsafe downtown. Uh, property crime and violent crimes are up, and we have heard many times from many people that they're requesting the return of a visible uniform presence in the downtown core, and uh, this core patrol program is in direct response to those uh, to those requests. You said return, Dave. Why return? Why would it why was it removed or or what was the how does this happen where we were there we're not there is is something changed no great uh, great question so um Back in 2022, um, we faced some staffing challenges here uh, at Hamilton Police, uh, but over the course of the last uh, year and a half or so, our human resources department and recruitment teams have been working really hard, filling some of the vacancies caused due to retirements, resignations, uh, and members who are off on sick leave. Uh, so we're, be- we're beginning to turn a corner in our staffing, and you know now's the time to rededicate our staff to focus on crime and disorder in the downtown core, and um, obviously uh, in addressing the concerns raised by our community, we need to make sure that we're being um, adaptable uh, and addressing the requests that we receive from our community about safety and how they feel about safety in the downtown. Uh, we remember the back in the day they would talk about beat cops or police that would walk the beat or walk the streets or what have you. Then they sort of went away from that and then it came back. Where is Hamilton on that? I mean, are there still, uh, you know, uh, uh, cops that still walk the beat and get to know the businesses and the people that live there? Does that still happen on a regular basis? It does, but not as often as we'd like it to. Um, so, you know, in all three of our patrol divisions, um, 
you know, we're emergency services. So emergency services, just by the nature of the work that we do in uniform patrol, to get to the calls quickly, they do that by right. vehicle. But where, yeah. uh, where we can, you see it through our mounted unit. We have members that uh, patrol on uh, all-terrain vehicles when we can. But in all three of our patrol divisions, we encourage our members to get out on foot, to walk in those communities like Concession Street and Dundas and Stony Creek. And so where you have the, the hubs and where it makes sense to do that work, we encourage our people uh, to get out and to make those connections. And the downtown is just a bit unique, obviously. Uh, just the size of the core here, uh, the demographics, the growth. And then, of course, you know, McMaster University has a huge fo footprint in the downtown. And then every day, Monday to Friday, uh, Saturday, included, you have a, a really large influx of pedestrian and vehicle traffic in the downtown core. And uh, so that is what the presence of these two members uh, is designed to address um, the concerns raised by those individuals. So what will we see with the core patrol? So the team started out on Monday. The whole, the whole idea and the concept is part of it is about making pe people feel safe in the community. We need, to, we need to be able to strike a balance in the city. So we have obviously numerous people in the downtown core who are um, struggling with homelessness, addictions, and mental health. So we need to be able to strike a balance between making sure that we're um, addressing crime, our core functions of crime prevention, law enforcement, also providing assistance where it need be. So. Um, if there's an opportunity and it's appropriate to make those connections, our members will be making sure that people they come across who are either unhoused, who are suffering from mental health addictions, they'll make those connections to the appropriate community resource. Um, also, their, their work is going to be focused on um, not only building relationships with the business owners so they have that direct line, but also doing some enforcement and enforcing the rules. So I can tell you my direction to them this week has been really to get out, introduce themselves to the businesses, but also spend some time in the core. Already this week, uh, they just started a couple days ago on Monday, uh, but they've made two arrests for uh, wanted individuals who had failed to appear in court and two provincial offense notices for individuals under the Safe Streets Act uh, for panhandling. At uh, the intersection of York and Bay, um, I've received probably two or three complaints in the last week of aggressive panhandling. One lady sent me an email a couple days ago. Uh, she pulled over, actually. She uh, was going to offer the individual some money there, or some food, rather, and uh, the individual reached inside the car and tried to grab uh, her, I believe it was, and, oh, and demanded money. So th these are the sorts of things, like complaints that we're hearing. That's just a one-off. Um, in addition to that, just some like some quick stats that we that we track monthly here. Just in Ward Two alone, which is where the core area that we're focusing our efforts, 273 calls for trespassing, Scott. Another 170 for suspicious activity, and then both violent crime and property crime. Both of them are trending uh, up. For so when you think about a, mm. a monthly average of uh, property crime. You know, September 2022 were about 194 incidents. Now we're up to 267, so a significant increase there. And then when you think about violent crime, it's just something that we really have to pay attention to. We're about 119 incidents in September of 2022, and now we're at 147. So um, obviously concern for our members, and all of that is taking place 
um, in that core area, and that is why our members are going to be designated and focusing their time and efforts in the core area. Uh, Corps Patrol, dedicated team of officers assigned to downtown Hamilton. Superintendent Dave Hennick with us from the Hamilton Police Service. You know, they complain when you're there. They complain when you're not. I don't know how you guys and girls do it, but keep up the great work. We're behind you. Thanks for your support, Scott. And uh, we're here to serve the community, all members of the community. And uh, if, you, if I would encourage members of the public, if they see the officers out there, it's Constable uh, Lauren Malone and Christian Nicoletta. Please come up and say hi. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking to Superintendent Dave Hennick of the Hamilton Police Service uh, just in the last hour about the core patrol, uh, which is present in the downtown core, try to alleviate some of the situation problems there. Uh, Hamilton Police obviously stepping up their presence. Uh, this is obviously in demand uh, and has been a response from what people have been saying. Shoplifting, panhandling, property damage reported. Retailers, residents in the area aren't happy. Let's bring in Emily Walsh, Executive Director, Downtown Hamilton. Business Improvement Area at uh, Houston Street South and is with us now. Emily, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks. So uh, we talked to uh, Superintendent Hennick uh, just last hour and talked about the Corps Patrol. Uh, is that going to help? What are your thoughts? Definitely, yes. We very much appreciate that um, the Hamilton Police Services have listened to the concerns that the businesses have been sharing recently and that they've uh, responded by providing some extra support in the form of Corps Patrol. Uh, you, you know, we remember the day when they used to be beat cops and such, and, and they were there for a while, then they went away, then they came back. And it seems when, you know, they're there, people complain, and when they're not there, people complain. Um, what has the response been like from your members? What have they said to you? It's definitely something that we've heard a lot over the past few years that um, we want the beat cops back and we want action team back in these things. They do find it really helpful just having those extra supports down here and being able to kind of form these closer ongoing relationships with the police service so that they can kind of start to tackle some of these proactive um, or proactively tackle some of these uh, concerns that they're facing. When did you notice, Emily, that it started to get bad? I mean, downtowns are downtowns. Um, you know, it, it, it comes with a, a, a different set of issues and such. When did you realize or even your members realize, you know, it's getting out of hand here? Definitely. I think everyone really struggled during the pandemics. Like um, downtowns across Canada really had a hard time getting through the last few years of um, pandemic downtown. And um, I think a lot of the businesses are still recovering from those difficult years and all of the impacts that were put on top of them. So I'd say it's been difficult, um, but it is so nice seeing people back down here. Even just today, we have summer promenade in Gore Park happening, and it's so lovely to see the park filled with Hamiltonians having a great time and enjoying some live music uh bias like yourself i mean everybody's worked so hard to turn downtown around you know even long before the pandemic and and just and make it a place where people wanted to come back and live i remember getting a grocery store down there was a big deal and and getting residential uh and such and and now it seems like we've got to do that again we've got to you know this is an issue we've got to keep keep reinforcing Oh, for sure. Things ebb and flow, right? Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. It's kind of just we're always going to strive down here to make it the best place it can be. And what is just having this patrol around? Is that going to be enough to settle things down? Just the visible signs of, of cops walking the beat? 
I don't know necessarily. It's obviously these are large issues that are being faced by um, cities across Canada. And I think that's why it's going to take interventions from all levels of government to find solutions to these huge complex issues like unaffordable housing and uh, mental health supports. But I do think it will go a long way towards making sure that the customers and visitors to the area can feel safe and comfortable when they come downtown. And like I said earlier, it's going to go a long way towards businesses and property owners being to being able to rebuild those um, close relationships with the police service and those and those kind of community policing supports really do help down here i think are you hearing from customers that people are scared to come down that they don't want to you see it it definitely online some of the uh, perceptions uh can be a bit negative down here but also the lived experience there's bright moments every single day down here you see people helping each other out you see people um getting together in the parks, getting together on patios. And so I think there can be a certain perception of downtown, but I do think that um, there's pros that come along with all the cons, right? Absolutely. And and, and typical of big cities. Um, uh, Are you hoping this will change over the course of the summer? And I guess the obvious answer is yes. But because things are now more open, uh, we're talking to Tim Potisic of of, uh, Supercrawl. That's going to be, you know, uh, full throttle this year again. As you said, patios opening up and such. As more and more things are getting back to whatever the new normal is, are you are you seeing this decline or, or can you see that happening? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think um, just having people out and about downtown goes a long way towards making it more vibrant, more welcoming down here. So the more things are open, the more people are coming out to support local businesses, the better we do. Uh, This started on Monday. Have you seen a difference yet? Um, I think they were ramping up uh, more corporate trolls even before they announced this on Monday. They uh, mm-hmm. were doing walk-in parks downtown where they were getting out of their patrol cars, um, taking a stroll down the street more often. Um, but yes, definitely. Even today, a couple of um, officers stopped by Promenade and had a nice little chat with us. So that was great to see as well. Emily Walsh with us, Executive Director, Downtown Hamilton Business Improvement, commenting on the Corps Patrol and a more stronger police presence in the downtown to help alleviate some of the situations uh, that are happening uh, here and in lots of great uh, cities across the land. Emily, good luck with all this moving forward. Thank you so much. Want to bring in uh, Dan McTagg here because there's lots of uh, chatter about uh, climate change and getting the world off of coal and what have you. We had Pierre Polyever, leader of the Conservative Party, on uh, last week, and we asked him because constantly the liberals say that there is no conservative plan. And then if you ask the conservatives, they'll say, well, the liberals plan doesn't get anything and just really generates revenue for them at the expense of the taxpayer. So I was very plain and asked Pierre Polyever, what is your climate plan and here's what he said my plan is this one technology and not taxes i will approve tidal wave projects in eastern canada so that nova scotia can get off coal and get onto tidal power i'll approve faster uh, process to, to get nuclear energy onto the grid in western canada and in new brunswick that's emissions free nuclear power I'll also speed up mining permits so that we can bring the electrification minerals to the surface. It takes 25 years to get a mining permit in Canada under Trudeau. And that's why we have to bring in our electric car batteries from coal-burning China. Why don't we bring home that production to Canada and mine that material here by speeding up 
mining permit. I will green light green projects like that. And finally, let's green light um, hydroelectricity in Quebec. They need to double their power from emissions-free hydroelectricity there. So in other words, instead of raising the cost of traditional energy that Canadians still need, as Trudeau proposes, why don't we lower the cost of carbon-free alternatives? That's a real plan to bring down prices and emissions. Uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'm tired of the extremism. Uh, I think that we're wasting our time if we're not getting the world off of coal, which is exactly what DeFasco is doing. There's a business case for them, but there isn't for Canada. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for, a formal, uh, for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me there, Scott. Uh, again, I don't want to play politics here, but, uh, you know, libs will always say the conservatives never have a plan. The conservatives say, well, their plan isn't working anyway. It's just costing us more money. Uh, what are your thoughts of what Pierre Polyever just had to say? Well, I'm not sure if it's what Pierre has said, but certainly the history in this country is that we know something about clean energy. Long before it was trendy, we had nuclear reactors. I know I had several in my own riding, the first in North America. Uh, hydroelectrics, nothing new. Adam Beck built over 120 years ago. Quebec, of course, uh, the Gamenic and many of its projects. And, uh, uh, you know, the development of natural gas out in Western Canada as an alternative to, uh, you know, burning firewood or coal or whatever the case may be. And even coal, if done right, can be done as long as you sequester and you use the right kind of coal. Canadian coal tends to be a lot cleaner. But look, uh, rather than clubbing people over the head, and creating market distortions and pursuing renewables that we damn well know don't work. I know this is a real problem for people out there who are trying to push this canard, but look, you're not, you can have the biggest windmills you want in the world, you know, make it as big as a CN Tower if you want, but if you've got no wind, it ain't working it, so it doesn't really matter what you say you can produce. Uh, if it's something that is as, as vulnerable and as subject to whim, then we ought not to be pursuing it, and certainly not pursuing it uh, to the angle of hurting uh, and discouraging investment in Canada in new technology. So I think we go with the flow. I think the flow is that Canada is a lead. We've done this before. We have a, uh, an excellent diversity of energy mixes, and we do so, uh, mm. you know, with incentivizing as opposed to uh, undermining the economy and damaging our ability to make ends meet. Bottom line, you keep pursuing this one side versus another, hydrocarbons versus the renewables, you'll wind up like Germany, you're burning lignite uh, these yeah. days in a way they have never done in their history. Uh, you said the key word there, mix. Um, uh, I, I think what's uh, bizarre in all of this is people have been sort of brainwashed into this is what we have to do, and that shut everything off, and it sort of stopped us from actually coming up with a plan. And, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the days of acid rain. We got yeah. together. We solved the problem. I remember the ozone layer was going to come apart and we're all going to burn up. We got together. We fixed it. They didn't tax the hell out of everybody to do it. They made industry do it. They, they, they encouraged industry to do it. And, and yet now we're, it seems we're using green energy as a revenue generator for the liberals. I mean, they just, you know, oh my goodness, I want to save the planet. Here's another 20 bucks, Dan. Um, you know, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I'm just going to say you're right. And, and, and there are the opportunities to do that, the incentives to do that, the so-called uh, carrot rather than the stick. But, you know, take that up with industry. And if, in, if the technology is not there, if the law of physics doesn't permit these things, 
then for God's sake, stop trying to make some kind of political, or worse, uh, some scientific nonsense argument around it that you know truly doesn't exist. And I, look, I think the easier way for Mr. Polyev and others who rightly are saying we need to look at this pragmatically is to simply take away the amount of federal funding to charities and foundations who basically come out, write this kind of data, support the lawfare organizations out there that are really hog-tying Canada's energy resources. If you want to nip this in the bud and get back to a real discussion, that's where you go. The grifters want to go out there and push their uh, studies and their academics and their uh, their uh, you know their political uh, engineering and their 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 uh, desire to get out there and push the political narrative by using public funds. I say cut that off. Jean Chrétien did it with NACSAO, the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, back in 1997. There's no money in the kitty, folks. If your organization is strong and good and people like it, you should be able to fund yourselves. I think that's the fair way of approaching it. If I were Mr. Polyev, that would be the other thing I would do. I'd make sure that, damn sure, the CRA is now looking back and doing audits once again on foundations and charities, because, frankly, neither are any of the things they claim to be. We remember Germany has been on this uh, on this uh, at the forefront for 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, they're now back to coal because of lack of, of natural right. gas. Norway has now opened uh, uh, $18 billion with a B is going to be spent on redeveloping their, their gas industry. Uh, and, and Scandinavia, I mean, they do everything right, don't they? Uh, and yet here is Norway uh, finding a business case for Canadian uh, or for their natural gas that we don't seem to be able to see well, we don't want to see because we're told not to see and mr trudeau and his kindness companions are very much uh, in line with that one side that says uh yet to anything to do with canada and I, I think that's unfortunate because we're missing a massive opportunity it's good enough for norway and it's good enough for sweden it ought to be good enough for canada or do we really want to impoverish people, bring people down to a level of subsistence, the likes of which uh, may force a lot of people to say, maybe this isn't such a great and attractive country to be in. Uh, I tend to believe, and, and more optimistically, that uh, Canada has a solution, but it's not going to do it by going around and pretending and calling people deniers because they're simply reflecting on the truth. Uh, I uh, spend a considerable amount of my time deflating those arguments because at the end of the day, they're really based on more uh, you know, uh, desire to be more uh, political and scientific and more of a desire to have one group of people fork over uh, you know, their hard-earned money so that others can, uh, can benefit. And that, frankly, we've had a 10, 12 years of green energy in this province. We know what it means. It means higher costs for everybody, major debts for government, and at the end of the day, less reliable energy. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about uh, all things environmental and where we go moving forward. Dan, as always, (laughs) thanks for the time. Be well as we save the day. Good luck. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, Canada's pride in, in their nationality, like most things these days, seems to be divided along party lines and is perhaps uh, not as strong as it used to be. Uh, well, the majority of uh, Canadians say they're proud to be Canadian, 81%. Uh, they're feeling less of this among Conservative supporters than their Liberal counterparts. I would suggest if the Conservatives were in power, this would be the reverse. Uh, let's bring in Ian Large, Executive Vice President in Alberta of Leger. And with us now, Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, Very well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Happy to be here. Give us a little bit of a quick update here. And what stands out in this for you from this survey of Canadians as we head into Canada Day? 
Uh, yeah, it's a couple of things. So one is, as you, as you pointed out, we've got 81% of Canadians who, who say they are very or somewhat proud uh, to be Canadian and by far more very proud than somewhat. But uh, there's a couple of things that, that really jump out at us. And as you alluded to, conservative voters or people that tell us they're likely to vote conservative are less likely to say they were proud. Uh, we've got 76% uh, of, of conservative voters compared to 97% of liberal voters who say that they're uh, either somewhat or very proud. So that's a that's a is a big uh, a big sh uh, shift, and uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And what do you think? What do you think those are? So there's a couple. So you remember uh, a couple of months ago that uh, Pierre Polyev talked about Canada being broken, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that it just felt like everything was wrong. So I think that that sort of prevailing pessimism might be trickling through into the into the Conservative Party. Uh, but the other thing that we see is that there's a there's a, a a significantly less likely to feel proud to be Canadian from those living in Alberta. And of course, hmm. Alberta voters are more likely to vote Conservative. So it's a it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. So we're seeing uh, in Alberta, for example, um, you know, you've got um, so, um, uh, sixty-eight percent being saying they're very proud uh, versus uh, or total proud versus eighty-three uh, percent in Ontario. So, so those right. two things uh, are are working hand in hand. I think. Do you think it would be different if uh, the Conservatives were in power and Liberals were in opposition? Well, that's a great question. I, I think so. I mean, certainly. Uh, you know, your if your guys in in office, you know, you're yeah. feeling good about that. So sure. that's no doubt is is having something to do with it. So so perhaps the conservative voters are saying, well, I'm I'm unhappy that that there's a liberal leading the leading the country. Uh, so that that affects my level of pride. Uh, that's that's uh, undoubtedly the case. Um, and but we're seeing you know similarly high numbers of of NDP voters at 87 percent feeling proud. So so it's partly that, and it's partly just. I think maybe the Conservatives are feeling a little bit uh, hard done by. Um, I don't think this was your poll, someone else's, but uh, it certainly got lots of action. 80% of Canadians, over 80% of Canadians want change. However, I think it's over 30% don't know who they're going to vote for. How do you think that figures into it when so many Canadians want change? So that's when we, we would see that run up to any election. Of course, we don't know when the next federal election is going to be. Change is... Uh, it's it's you're, it's unlikely, especially after we've seen Trudeau in power for so long that mm -hmm. uh, that everybody is satisfied with everything that he's done. So uh, change uh, changes is, is always welcome, of course, until change happens, and then it's not so welcome. But that's that's just human nature. So uh, I would not I wouldn't be surprised if um, you know Canadians maybe want to go to the polls and and have another another try. Um, despite the differences and the divisiveness, uh, we're still pretty proud, it seems, though, at, at 80%. I think so. I mean, we don't have uh, the American numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if the American numbers were a lot higher. But that's sort of built into their into their uh, mm -hmm. DNA, if you like, in a way yeah. that Canadians, we don't tend to crow so much about our country and, and our people. Yeah. Uh, so, But 81%, um, I think that's something to be proud of.
Ian Large with us, Executive Vice President of Leger, Alberta, and talking about uh, 81% are happy, um, but some aren't, and a lot of them are conservatives. Ian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your interest. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly uh, live in a very divisive world, it appears, in a uh, post-pandemic society. Uh, And there's a lot of uh, angry people out there, a lot of upset people, a lot of people having a hard time um, making ends meet as, um, you know, the cost of living, the cost of everything uh, just seems to be going through the roof. Today, we saw the launch of the new Hamilton for All campaign. It's a public education campaign that aims at stimulating dialogue and opening minds by encouraging Hamiltonians to stand up against prejudice exclusion and discrimination based on ethnicity, race, religion, country of origin, disability, sexual orientation, and other differences. To talk more about all of this, Sarah Wayland with us, Senior Project Manager, uh, Manager Hamilton Integra- uh, Immigration Partnership Council, and is with us now. Thanks so much for the time, Sarah. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show. So, Sarah, uh, I was talking to my producer off air. Uh, I've been in the business an awfully long time, and there's been lots of campaigns like this that have come and gone over time. What is the objective of this campaign? How is this one different? Well, this campaign actually builds on one that a Hamilton for All campaign that you may remember from 2017 and 2018 that was focused more on newcomers, immigrants, and refugees. And building on what's been happening in recent years and the kinds of um, discrimination and manifestations of hate that you were just describing uh, and the way that people are feeling these days, uh, Hamilton Immigration Partnership Council uh, joined a coalition called No Hate in the Hammer. And that is a coalition of a lot of different organizations and individuals. And this campaign is rising out of that and uh, has a broader focus this time around to include Indigenous people, people with disabilities, especially uh, colleagues in the queer community, uh, as well as newcomers, racialized people, uh, people who are targeted for religious identity. Um, And I should also add that this is, today was a co-launch. So we launched Hamilton for All, which is very visual and has uh, amazing posters that were created for the campaign. But there's also an anti-hate toolkit that goes along with the campaign. So I think that's what's different this time is that it's not just an awareness campaign. Uh, it's also a campaign that seeks to build action and to build capacity and direct people towards acting. Um, do you think or do you feel that the, uh, campaigns like this preach to the choir? And by that, I mean uh, everybody that rallies, everybody that's there. I mean, they're all on the same page, obviously. They're, they all believe in, in this. And 99% of Canadians, Hamiltonians, Ontarians, whichever way you want to slice it, are good people. It's it's the, the small percentage that, for some reason, attack others for various reasons, various stripes, what have you. Are you targeting those people or is this you know just reaffirming what everybody else already knows everybody knows this is not mm-hmm. how we live but are you are you worried that this is preaching to the choir and not getting to the people who actually need this help well i think at the launch today we saw a lot of people 
who are familiar, people I know, but then also I saw a lot of faces of people, people I had never met before who were coming from different organizations and um, just there as individuals, people who I think are concerned for the direction that our city has been moving in sometimes. And I think that this campaign is really aimed at kind of the moderate middle, people who are out there and they know that they'd like to do something but they don't feel maybe that they have the capacity to act. And in that sense, yeah, like you said, most people are good and good-hearted, but often they might just stand by because they don't have the confidence to speak up or to take action. So this campaign is really aimed at them, at people in the middle. We're not going to reach the extremists and the small minority of real troublemakers. We're being realistic. But the vast majority of people are kind of in the middle, and they may get on board if they uh, have the tools to do so. So, uh, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, um, you can't reach the extremists, yet you want the middle to. Well, we want the middle to grow. We want we want the, the people who are working towards inclusion um, to grow. We want that side to grow and to, to outgrow and to continue to outpace those who are more on the exclusionary side. Uh, Canada, very much a, a country of immigrants. My mother, uh, an immigrant, you know, the stories are uh, many the same. Come here with nothing, build a life for themselves. Uh, and, and that's pretty much been our history. Don't we already know this? Huh. Well, uh, we, we like to think we know it, but there are many people who continue to feel um, excluded because they are excluded. And we find that that is manifested in very specific places around the city, in workplaces, uh, in public spaces like parks. It could be on while riding, you know, public transit. Uh, it can be um, just in community meetings, and especially in the workplace is something that we heard about quite a lot in the research that we did leading up to this study. So, uh, we have a poster campaign here, and if you go to hamiltonforall.ca, you can find all kinds of gorgeous posters and resources that can be downloaded. If you don't have the ability to um, print them yourselves, you can contact us through the website, and we will try to work with you to make sure that you get some get some posters. And that, that Hamilton for All website, hamiltonforall.ca, is linked to the anti-hate toolkit to a belonging pledge that we hope people would read and sign. It was uh, first signed by Mayor Andrea Horvath, who spoke today at the launch and spoke on behalf of the city of Hamilton, which we think is a very strong statement. Sarah Whalen with us, Senior Project Manager, Hamilton Immigration Partnership Council, launching the new Hamilton for All campaign. Sarah, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we've uh, heard it again today. Google said it would shut down its news services to Canadian users and block links to its uh, news in search uh, in the search engine in this country following the passage of a law that would force it to pay Canadian publishers for or news organizations for links to their news. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, and here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on this, Carmi? Because I'm not sure I'm on the same page of, uh, as this uh, of this as you are. Um, my, I remember when uh, I've been in the media for 40 years. I remember when this all started. 
And we were told when it started, do as much as you can to get your presence on uh, social media, on the web, to get our links on the web. So when other organizations or whatever, uh, they hit our link, it would drive people back to our site. So what's the problem here? Because uh, are are we asking uh, Facebook and Google and whatever for revenues that really aren't deserved here um at the end of the day it does drive uh, the user back to the the home link so why is this an issue well it's an issue because the internet as we know it has changed significantly since it first became a thing to canadians so for example the commercial internet first sort of became a reality for us day to day around the mid 90s uh, and Google, of course, came along in 1998, uh, and uh, and of course, its ad business built up through the early part of the aughts to the point that it's you know the largest ad network in the world today, um, and generating huge amounts of money. So yeah, in the early days of the internet, the guidance was rightfully so: get yourself on online and start driving links, start you know get links up, start driving traffic back to your website. And the idea then was that on your website, you would then serve up ads and you would sell those ads against that traffic. And what ended up happening as Google became the advertising juggernaut that it is, is that it used its search engine technology to fuel that advertising engine. And essentially, it took all of that revenue. So no longer do media organizations realize huge amounts of revenue by uh, monetizing visitors to their website. Uh, now, what ends up happening is is that content, we don't go to websites anymore. We, can, we, we, we get it through search engines and social media. And it's these companies, Meta, Google, Amazon, who reap the rewards. They get the content for free and they don't share. And then they sell ads on it, so they make money off of it. But they don't send that, any of that money back to the companies that are creating it. So structurally, the industry has changed significantly since the mid to late 90s when all of this got started uh, and as a result the traditional model of advertising supported media uh, is under increasing threat and bill c18 was supposed to level that playing field ensure that everyone who benefits from this content pays their fair share so yeah i can understand the disparity but at the same time it's a very different world than it was 30 or so years ago uh that being said is it maybe that just social media is doing it better uh, and in traditional media didn't learn that fast enough um, because um, it seems it seems yeah. that, you know, this isn't not, this isn't about the content. It's a method of distribution. And traditional media was all over this when they could increase the method of distribution and get it to more eyes and ears. And and that was an advantage for the traditional media. But now we haven't been able to monetize it the way that Facebook has. Is that our fault or is that Facebook's fault? Well, I mean, I think it's certainly fair to say, you know, like, hey, if you you, uh, build a better mousetrap, you should be allowed to reap the rewards from it. And let's be clear, companies like Google built a better mousetrap. They figured out how to use digital platforms to generate revenue that flowed directly to them. But at the same time, we need to recognize that they did it within an environment which was essentially free of regulation. So, you know, if you work in the broadcast industry for decades, of course, the CRTC, our national telecom regulator, has had rules in place that ensure that the industry has the ability to sustain itself 
and that revenues go where they need to go. So there's there's a framework to ensure that there's a, a level of fairness for everyone. Whereas in the digital space, that has not been the case. And so you've had these very large, influential American companies uh, that have global spanning networks and tools and platforms, and they've essentially been allowed to plow their way into Canada with no regulatory limitations whatsoever. And if you're just a relatively small Canadian media outlet, you literally do not have a prayer. So yes, by to a certain extent, they outcompeted us, but at the same time, they outcompeted us because the playing field was always tilted away from our advantage from the start. And we need and and the red bill C eighteen is the first piece of significant legislation designed to give give us back a little bit of, of of ability to fight back. And that's this is what happens when governments essentially allow foreign entities, large foreign entities, to do as they wish within our national borders. We lose our, our national sense of interest. It's not our content, though, that is driving their profits, because if that was the case, they wouldn't be dropping it. Well, that, that's the thing. It is right. They are generating. They're not saying exactly how much revenue they generate specifically off of Canadian news content. But it's safe to say that if it shows up in a whole bunch of searches and we click on those links and then it shows up in our social media feeds and we click those links home, that we are gener generating a certain degree of revenue back to these companies. And, and there's also a, a, a way of looking at this that we use Google because one of the one of the value uh, propositions of using Google is that we do access net. Uh, news content through there. If you lose news content from uh, in, in the, within the Google channel, uh, the Google channel becomes less valuable to us and thus less valuable to Google. So, of course, they're negotiating hard. They're not going to say that it's going to hurt them. They're going to keep it close to the vest. But let's be clear, uh, they're threatening the government knowing full well that you know they don't want to pay. Uh, which would benefit them, but they also realize they're going to lose a significant amount of revenue and value going forward of their platforms and their services. One less reason for us to use them if they do, in fact, make good on these threats. It's it's a pretty big gamble from where we sit. Uh, and at the end of the day, it means it makes it a lot easier for you and me to move on from services like Facebook and Google, which, as we know, is already in progress. Um, I think that's irrelevant, Carmi. I really do. Um, but, you know, you're the expert, not me. I, I, I see them being able to monetize it and us not. So that therefore we're asking them for money. That's that's kind of how I see it here. So what? Mm -hmm. um, but that's my opinion. Um, what, wh where do you see this going? Are there other? You know, I was this is the question I was going to ask. Are there other countries doing this? What is other countries position on this? Because I just saw an interview uh, with the U.S. ambassador to Canada and they purposely did not get involved in this at all. Yeah, Australia, uh, in fact, was the first country in the world to enact a law very similar to the Online News Act. Uh, and it Are they the only ones, though? Because uh, we, do we see any big countries doing this? Uh, yeah, the UK is moving forward. Germany is moving forward on this. I think eventually the US is going to have no choice but to. They're just watching watching and waiting to see what happens in Canada and, and other countries before. But it's pretty clear there is a global trend toward forcing big tech to start being more accountable for the content that flows across their platform. And, and sorry to run quickly, but we're running out of time here. How are those countries, how is Germany dealing with this without having their news now being not available to their users? Well, that's it's in Germany. It's only proposed legislation, so they haven't had to face that yet. But in Australia, right. uh, Meta and Google did threaten to go dark, uh, and they ultimately negotiated a deal and allowed the law to go through. So, uh, you know, what what we hope happens in Canada already happens in Australia, and they're already negotiating deals with media there and paying for the for carrying that content on their platform. So there is precedence. Not quite sure why big tech doesn't seem to want to do the same thing here in Canada.
Interesting discussion. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Uh, and, of course, Google uh, said it's going to shut down its new services to Canadian users uh, at the end of the year. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great being here, Scott. Thank you. I'll never forget, I was probably a teenager, and I'd come home late at night and, you know, turn on late-night TV. And there's this this grandmother, it seemed like, uh, and she had two dolls. They weren't really dolls, like the size of Barbie dolls, but they were sort of like um, uh, beaded dolls sort of thing, you know, non, a very generic, non-gender, all sorts of... And she was making them into positions, sexual positions, and like... and giving it, But she was giving advice. And um, my grandmother never talked to me that way. Uh, parents neither. Uh, but she did too many. And Sue Johansson, the beloved Canadian broadcaster who had such shows as Sex with Sue, Talk Sex with Sue Johansson, very successful phone-in radio show in Canada and eventually picked up in the U.S. She was on The Tonight Show and Late Night with David Letterman. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman and talk uh, Sue Johansson, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I was giggling at your description of the dolls, Scott. Do you remember that? She used to sit there and yeah, was like, oh, my I God, what are you doing? You. Sue came to my high school with slides. Wow. Okay? wow. Slides showing an erection. And we all oh. just, there wasn't a peep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> she was a woman. She was before Dr. Ruth. Yeah. She understood that there was Before a the internet. Before the internet and before anybody can get their hands on information to know what was going on with their own sexuality. She took the mystique out of genitalia. She answered the questions we were too afraid to ask. And I remember her show, Scott. Yeah, they had her on too. quite late. I think she was on from like 10 p.m. to midnight. And there was always somebody who called in and talked about a sexually transmitted disease or I don't know if I'm straight or I, you know, she answered every question that you as an adolescent or a young adult asked. And because of the anonymity. And this is before everything. She had, you know, she was onto something before we even knew what she was onto. She had a platform, a very wide platform that gave anonymity to the callers, yet answered questions that had resonance to everybody who listened. We felt very safe with her. A hundred percent. And it was because, you know, you said she looked like a grandmother. She wasn't. She probably wasn't. I mean, you know, when we were watching, we were quite young. So or listening. So but she had a very non-threatening demeanor, although she was, excuse me, very, very matter of fact. Uh, With this. Yeah, go ahead. Would this fly now? Would there or would there be more scrutiny over a show like this now? Or you know, we could always debate is it needed because we got internet and stuff. But even the content, would this fly now? I think it would. You know, Scott. I think I think that it absolutely would. And you know, there's still Doctor Ruth, and and yep. I think that there are still shows where people are calling in. I mean, this is definitely more old school. It it would fly now, but in a different way on a different platform. Perhaps it would be a Twitter live now, or perhaps it would be a streamed show now, or she would be way more syndicated now. I don't think that sex right. 
was ever a syndicated show. Remember, it was on Rogers Cable 10 here in Toronto. And I remember the radio station. It was Q107 late at night yeah. on a Sunday yeah. night from 10 p.m. to midnight. Yeah. And yeah. I, that's like 35 years ago, Scott. And I cannot believe I still remember the time frame. So why was why did we watch? Why did we listen? Of course, it's sex. So everybody wants to find out about that. But it was like we were, you know, hiding behind a curtain and listening to this lady. This is the first time anybody ever put sexuality out in the open. And I think that we were listening because, and on one hand, we were voyeurs because we wanted to hear everybody else's issues. But we yeah. also wondered if they, if she would answer anything that we might have been thinking about. Mm. And that's what made Sue special. She was non-judgmental. She gave answers in a very, very matter-of-fact way. And she did it in a non-threatening way. Unless you were trying to sort of put one over on her, then she, then she totally called you out. But if not, she gave you the information that you needed to know. And I still think that, you know, there are platforms that you, where you can get the information you need to know. But nowadays, on, you know, on the web, and people are always, always saying, Scott, well, I did my research. Well, research on the web could be anything. And you cannot verify the source. But with Sue, she was an expert. She was degreed. She had principles. She had morals. But she also wanted to educate. And as an expert, you could trust her. And that would basically be, in my mind, the big difference that Sue was on now versus then. Although I think I'm still scarred by that discussion she had on anal sex. I'm not sure I'm ever going to forget that one. Um, good sex works. She lived till 93. <laughs> Sorry, Good I know. For her. If, we, Good for if, her. We, if we weren't talking about this, I'd never be able to say that. No, that is true. I was also thinking of all the words that she took the mystique out of. But I mean, I can yes. them all now. But you know, yeah. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. But she she pulled no punches, Sue. And I yeah. think that at that time, at that generation, we were craving somebody who would just give us the answers and not sugarcoat it. Good point. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, speaking on the passing of Sue Johansson, legendary, straightforward sex advice uh, person who was uh, on TV and radio for years here in Canada and the United States. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.